In the Hollywood motion picture Armageddon, we are introduced to a burly oil field miner by the name of Harry Stamper, who is played by actor Bruce Willis in this tale. In this story, Stamper has been asked to volunteer to take part in an extraordinarily dangerous mission. It is a last-ditch effort to save the human race from the onslaught of an unstoppable asteroid on course to strike the planet Earth. Landing a space shuttle on the surface of this massive rock Harry and his compatriots managed to drill a hole deep into the core of the asteroid and to drop down into it a nuclear device. It is their intention to detonate this device from a remote distance, splitting the asteroid in two and hopefully making its halves miss the Earth. At the climactic moment that the charge has been set and the shuttle is about to lift off from the asteroid, something goes terribly amiss. It becomes clear that somebody is now going to have to stay behind. Someone will have to remain on the asteroid and detonate the explosive manually. Without a moment's hesitation, Harry Stamper volunteers for the job. And in the final minutes of his life, Harry speaks by video phone back to Mission Control in Houston and is able to talk with his precious daughter, Gracie, played by actress Ann Tyler. With tears streaming down her cheeks, the daughter burbles out to her dad, everything good I have inside of me, I have from you, dad. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. And I am so scared. There won't be anything to be scared of soon, says her father. I'll look in on you. I love you, Gracie. Moments later, Harry kneels on the surface of the asteroid as it shakes and shudders. It is spewing hot gases, its surface is breaking up, and Stamper is struggling to maintain hold of the detonator he has in his hands as he watches the shuttle safely escape the atmosphere, the orbit of the asteroid, and get out into space. And then Harry turns his head and stares longingly out across a vast, almost unimaginable distance at a beautiful blue planet spinning silently in the cosmos. And a gentle smile creases his rugged face as he whispers... We win, Gracie. And then presses the detonator. Suddenly, the screen is filled with racing images. We see back across time to a sunny day when Harry is pushing his laughing little girl in the backyard swing set. 
We're treated to a blur of images reflecting the glorious and the grainy moments of everyday human life. And then we are rushed out into the future, even beyond this moment, to a day when Gracie will be dressed as a radiant bride on her wedding day. And then the asteroid erupts in a blinding explosion, fractures in two, and careens clear of our planet on either side as the saved of the earth begin to cheer. Long ago, Hollywood learned to draw its very best themes from the Bible. Long ago, it figured out that there were no stories that rang so true, that reached so deep, that stirred so many as the story of what God has done in his word. And though he is not credited at the end of this movie, it is no accident that the daughter's name is Grace. Though it might more properly be graced. For that indeed is what this daughter in the story, in the film is. She is Grace, not just she, but the entire human race, graced by a love, willing to sacrifice himself for their sake. And this also is true of you and of me today. Not a story, but the truth. We have been graced by a love, willing to sacrifice himself for our sake. The Apostle Paul puts it, or John puts it like this in one of his letters. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called daughters and sons of God. And that is what you are, says John. Never forget No matter how the earth shakes and changes, no matter what hurdles at you in this life, never forget that you are beloved of the Father. The Bible teaches that God saw the consequences of sin and evil hurtling toward human life at an unstoppable speed. Unlike the main character in the Hollywood movie, God himself would not have been destroyed if that judgment came upon us. It would not have destroyed him. Unlike the Hollywood tale, this destruction was not just a random act. Not just an accident of collision. But actually the just asserts of choices made by those who lived on that planet, who forsook its creator. And so the judgment against this sin and evil hurtled towards humanity. But at a level infinitely larger than the love that Harry Stamper held for his daughter, God looked with compassion upon the children of this earth and he chose to intervene in a way that required of him cataclysmic 
and continuing sacrifice. And it is this that I want to reflect upon with you today. You and I have got no way to appreciate, even for a moment, what it is to live in the dimension where God lives. We just can't get there. We just don't have the capacity to take it in. And so the Bible gives us poetry to describe it. It gives us suggestive images. Not to say that this is what it is, but to suggest this is what it's like. It describes God as existing in a place beyond all physical need of any kind. No pangs, no struggles, no pains of any kind. It describes God as existing in a place of glorious light and warmth and love and endless life. The Bible describes God as existing in a place where he is surrounded by flawlessly beautiful, awesomely powerful beings whose pleasure it is to spend eternity kissing the ground before his feet in rapturous joy at just being in his presence. This is a little bit of what it is like to be God in the place where God dwells, the Bible says. But God sacrifices this. Seeing the depth of human need, the asteroid of judgment against sin and evil hurtling towards humanity, Jesus, the Son of God, raises his hand and says, I'll go. Father, I'll go. And paraphrasing Paul's spectacular ode to Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, Eugene Peterson describes it this way. Jesus had equal status with God. He was God himself. But he did not think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity. He had the privileges. No one could take them away from him. He set them aside voluntarily and took on the status of a slave. Meaning, he was infinitely free by nature. And he bound himself to mortality. He became human. And having become human, he stayed human. We'll come back to that in a minute. It was an incredibly humbling process. 
Paul says. He did not claim special privileges, though he could at any moment, as we'll say. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life, and then he died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Many of us recognize, at least in concept, I think, that the descent of God into human flesh had to have been a sacrifice. I mean, how many of you were snowbirds? What's it like for you to come back to Chicago in February? (laughs) To go from where he lives to where we live is the definition of climate change. Okay? It is infinite climate change. Think of going from above being an angel, from vastly beyond angelic status, to being a bug crawling around in a sewer and you begin to get something of the status change that he chose for himself. And it was not just a one-time transition, right? It wasn't like, um, raise your hand if you've ever had labor, ever been through labor, right? You know, it's agony, but then it's over and you have this baby in your arms and this blessed amnesia takes over in time which is the only reason why you'd ever go through it again if it wasn't for the amnesia, I'm told. I've had kidney stones. It's close, but maybe not. But it's not like that for him. It's not, it's not like he's just sort of momentarily sent to the branch office in Scranton, PA, or given a lunchtime detention. And, you know, there's just this one momentary sacrifice, and then he'll be back home again. It's not like that. No. For Jesus... To be a human being is a moment-by-moment sacrifice. At any time during his earthly life, Jesus could have instantaneously reassumed his glory. In other words, being fully God as well as fully man, everything in him would have burst forth into greater glory, greater expression of potency and power, and yet he restrains it. Every moment he restrains it. And so when confronted by idiots and followed by fools and plagued by hunger or thirst and and when having his body tortured by sadists, he could have with a single eye blink reassumed his blazing glory and he would have zap just been in perfection again, surrounded by perfection again. But he stays in the flesh. He stays as he is. And with each passing second, he just keeps laying his rightful privileges down. Three years was such a short time for him to be on earth, people say. (laughs) Three years. How many seconds is that? Of moment by moment. Laying it down. 
And then when the moment of ultimate choice comes, when his enemies are hurling insults at him, when they are cheering each agonized breath that he struggles to draw while writhing on a cross, when all it would take was the thought to zap them like the bugs they were. I mean, if he just let out a little bit of the fullness of his glory on the cross, it would give an encounter to those enemies standing there with them like bugs meeting one of the bug zappers the size of the sun. I mean, bam, it would be over for everyone. But he doesn't. He lays down the capacity to judge us. And he takes it into himself. And somehow, when he had to choose between the obliteration hurling justly at the human race or the obliteration of his own life to pay the price that would save humanity, Jesus fixes his eyes on the joy set before him, the Bible says. Now, I don't fully know what that means. Fixing his eyes on the joy set before him. But I think maybe it was something like this. Somehow Jesus is able to look past all of those disfigured characters, those distorted faces of hatred there at the foot of the cross, or those people who just were there enjoying the spectacle like it was some kind of a tailgate party. He was able to look past them and see that blue planet spinning quietly in space. I think it was like Jesus could look back across time and he could remember that day when he was pushing Eve on the swing set of Eden. I think he was somehow able to look beneath all of the grime and the distortion of human life and see the beauty and the goodness and the image of the Father still in the creation. And I think he was able to look beyond, out into the future, when one day the bride of Christ would be radiantly dressed and the creation restored. I think Jesus was able to look at this joy set before him. And as he gazed, as he gazed out, he pressed the detonator. And in a cosmic reaction that remains something of a mystery, there was a great shudder in the invisible realm as all of the righteous judgment came upon him. All of it. And all of that sin was absorbed in Christ and his life was snuffed out. And the awful destiny that was hurling toward us broke in half and death's final victory on one side and evil's final curse on the other side missed us. Passed by on either side. Leaving us with the shock waves to be sure. But ultimately, 
graced with the gift of a new life if we would choose it. This is what God is like. Okay? I mean, only poetry works to get at it. But this is something of what he's like. He's like an oil field miner who volunteers to go out across space and set himself down on a hurtling hunk of hell in order to lay down his life so that others may live. This is what God is like. God is God is like the greatest mind and heart that our imaginations can touch the hem of. Somebody who volunteers to leave the glorious halls of heaven and go all the way down into a dung-filled sheep pasture and then lay his life down for those sheep so that Evil will not steal, kill, and destroy their lives. God is like Jesus. Jesus is. Jesus is God. He's God voluntarily sacrificing himself in many ways for one reason. That you, says Jesus, may have life. And have it to the full. The question that I want to plant in each of us today before we go home, and I'm almost done, is, is given that we know something more of what God is like. How does it shape what we're like? Having caught just a bit larger vision of him, how does that reorient things for us? We talk about sacrifice a lot. Some of you have sacrificed. I mean, you've, you've lost jobs, you've lost money, you've lost loved ones. And it's hard. I mean, to have things taken from you, you know it is hard. But self-sacrifice is something different. The essence of self-sacrifice is choosing to do something you did not have to do. Right? You get cancer, you may just have to die from it. But the essence of that sacrifice, the essence of self-sacrifice, is having something that you could put away if you chose. 
It is doing something you didn't have to do. It is letting go of something you did not have to give up. It is going someplace you did not have to go. It is saying something you didn't have to say. It is providing something you did not have to offer. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. Nobody sacrifices my life. But I lay it down. I lay it down of my own accord. And you and I have been graced, richly graced, by the fact that he did. Now, where and how can you and I exercise self-sacrifice towards the people he loves to continue the movement of that grace. Last night, dozens of our middle school students laid it down. Uh, They literally did. Do you remember how cold it was last night? They were outdoors, sleeping on the ground all night long. Why? They wanted to know what it was like to be homeless. And so they went down to get there, to try and taste it, to get alongside of need. And to wake us up to the need and to respond in an initial way to that need. I visited Mama Maggie in Cairo, Amy and I and others a few years ago. There are hundreds of people in their 20s working for her. These are educated, bright, capable people that could do anything with their lives. And they have chosen to lay it down, to work alongside of her, some of them full-time, others in volunteer time, to come alongside the poor and wash their feet and love up on kids and just bring a little bit of holy health and hope into the midst of the hell where these kids live. They lay it down. Maybe part of the call for you is to lay some material possession down, something you do not really need, maybe something you feel you do to meet a necessity in the life of somebody else. Maybe that's one way of expressing your response to what God has sacrificed. Maybe it's something else. Maybe what you're called to lay down is a grudge. Maybe what he's asking you to lay down is some pain in your life, some rightful, understandable anger and and justifiable wrath towards somebody else who's done you wrong. You don't have to lay that down. Maybe he's asking you to. To lay aside your right, your privilege to get even and to forgive that person as he forgives you. Maybe you're to lay down your right to speak so someone else can be heard. Maybe you're to lay down your right and desire and the privilege you've gotten accustomed to of being the one who mostly gets served. 
in your workplace, in your home, in your church, and instead take up the position of that servant who you've caught a glimpse of. My point to you is this, in closing. If you have caught a vision of the God who, in Jesus Christ, sacrificed himself, laid himself down for our redemption, then it isn't a question of whether you're going to be a person of self-sacrifice. It will be what and where and for whom you will lay it down. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to show us what you wish us to sacrifice. And we pray, Lord God, that it will not just be a one-time experience, but a moment-by-moment dependence upon you, offering of ourselves in love, love to serve your purposes in this world for which you came and died and rose again. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.